Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about what's in a name. In recent years, I've become aware that many in the Western world believe that there was no such thing as China until the early 20th century. Congratulations if you're hearing this notion for the first time, but trust me, it's out there. And yes, I have only heard this point of view from Western individuals. An American commentator here, a French PhD student there, and so on. And to be clear, so as not to be guilty of making this position into the proverbial straw man, the argument here is that until modern Chinese nationalism, the movement that led to the overthrow of the empire and the founding of the Republic of China, the Chinese didn't refer to their own country by its contemporary name, which in Mandarin is Zhongguo. The argument here is that the Chinese always referred to their country by the name of the dynasty that happened to rule it. So, during the Qing dynasty, the Chinese would have referred to their country as Qingguo, the country of Qing. During the Song dynasty, they would have said Songguo, the country of Song, and so on. They never would have referred to it as Zhongguo, the central country, or the Middle Kingdom, as it is often translated as. And therefore, so the argument goes, Zhongguo, China, the Middle Kingdom, the central country, is a modern construct, retroactively imposed on millennia's worth of history. At least that's the argument. And it is no doubt, in my mind, a reaction to the way the Chinese, not least the modern state of the People's Republic, like to repeat the mantra that China is 5,000 years old, which itself is a bit of an exaggeration. Because under the the Chinese never call themselves Chinese theory, not only is China not 5,000 years old, it's barely 100 years old. An attractive argument, it seems, for some. Well, I'm here to tell you today surprise, that that's not true. If you happen to be sympathetic to this view, below is the evidence as to why it's wrong. If you already think the idea is ridiculous, well, below is the evidence as to why you're right. And before I get into it, let me just preface the following by saying that, of course, the same term might have meant different things in different periods in the past, different from each other, and different compared to today. Of course, when one says Zhongguo today, one's meaning isn't exactly the same as what one might have meant by the same term a thousand years ago. But then, that's true of many things, certainly true of the names of nations generally. The United States of America today is different 
in a thousand ways from the country as understood by Washington and Jefferson and James Madison. Modern Britain is hardly the same concept as when James VI of Scotland became James I of England. And so we can have an interesting, sophisticated, and long discussion on the nuances of the meanings of the name or names of China across the ages. But right now, I just want to establish a simple fact that, to my surprise, I found many Westerners refuse to acknowledge. The Chinese absolutely have referred to their country as China, i.e. Zhongguo, for a very long time. So long, in fact, that we begin the story over 3,000 years ago in the Shang Dynasty, lasting roughly from 1600 BC to 1046 BC. We've previously talked about the oracle bones dating from the Shang Dynasty and showing the earliest extant examples of Chinese writing. On these oracle bones, we can see how the ancient Shang rulers referred to themselves and to the fiefdoms granted to various lords. Remember, at this time, the prevailing system of government was a distinctly feudal one, with a king at the center and various dukes and counts ruling over local fiefdoms. On these oracle bones, we see that the fiefdoms to the east of the royal domain were called the eastern countries, the ones to the west were called the western countries, and the royal domain itself was called Zhongshang, the central Shang. You may protest that Zhongshang, the central Shang, was not the same as Zhongguo, the central country. And you'd be right. So, all right, we move on to the early years of the Zhou dynasty, established in 1046 BC. A bronze vessel discovered from this era bears an inscription. And this inscription literally uses the term Zhongguo, the central country. It is the first recorded usage of the term that we have been able to find thus far. And the term here again referred to a swath of central China, roughly corresponding to the royal domain of the previous Shang dynasty. A couple hundred years into the Zhou dynasty, and as you may recall, it began to decentralize so that the Zhou kings themselves wielded rather little authority, and the major fiefdoms were now the true powers. This period, the later half of the Zhou dynasty, or the Eastern Zhou dynasty, is also called the Spring and Autumn, and the Warring States periods. Ancient texts from this time also use the term Zhongguo. The Shangshu, a book recording the words and deeds of ancient kings through the Zhou dynasty, uses the term Zhongguo in a key passage. The Li Ji, the Book of Rites, composed by the disciples of Confucius, uses the term in a passage 
，中国荣夷，五方之名，皆有其信也，不可推移。From China to the various barbarians, the different races in all different directions have their own customs, which cannot easily be changed. A key point that you should understand, and which I may as well point out here now, although it will continue to be relevant throughout the rest of this discussion, is that from earliest times the Chinese had an essentially imperial view of their political system. What do I mean by that? I think none other than Henry Kissinger, whatever you feel about him. Expounded on this idea in his book *Diplomacy*, a nation may be understood as approaching the world in an imperial manner if it proceeds with a sense of itself as, on some level, the only legitimate political authority on earth. So that all foreign kings and potentates need to legitimize themselves in the eyes of the empire. The Roman Empire behaved this way. Treating its client kingdoms as well clients, the Persian Empire behaved this way in its heyday. The king of Persia wasn't called the king of Persia, but the king of kings or the great king. Smaller and comically uncouth political entities like Gasp, Macedonia, only existed and controlled a corner of the earth because the great king. Suffered them to do so. Modern United States has an intuitively imperial approach to world affairs, in that it imagines its values to be universal, so that everyone ultimately should want what Americans want, if only they can be brought to see the light. In contrast, nations that see themselves as nation states among other nation states of equal standing. Even if not of equal power, would proceed on the international stage quite differently. Nations of modern Europe have generally dealt with one another as such sovereign equals. Why am I talking about this? Because, well, the charge was that the Chinese didn't call their own country Zhongguo, the central country or state. But since the Chinese had long held A theoretical understanding of their king or their emperor to be the only true political authority in the earthly realm, there was less reason to use that character, Guo, to refer to their own country. In essence, their country was the whole world, and their king, their emperor, was the king of kings, like the Shah of Persia. Other people's countries would require this guo designation to mark them out as somehow independent from the authority of the Chinese monarch, or alternatively, fiefdoms would have this character guo attached to mark out the territories as having been granted to this or that lord by the monarch. So the states of the Spring and Autumn and Warring States were all called guo. Because they began as fiefdoms, but even during this time, the term Zhongguo sometimes appeared and was used to mean the specific portion of China still under the direct control of the Zhou King. But even then, 
In one instance in the book Zhang Guozhe, The Stratagems of the Warring States, the term Zhongguo was used to mean the collective territories of all the warring states, i.e. all the fiefdoms of the Zhou kingdom, i.e. the entirety of the portion of the earth that was culturally and politically part of the Chinese world. And let me try to be clear, even where a nation intuitively imagines itself in an imperial manner, the hard limits of political power force that country to concede that, in the end, it is only one nation among nations. Rome and Persia had to acknowledge each other as equals. The United States repeatedly discovers that it cannot impose its will, for good or for ill, on foreign corners of the world, at least not always. And so the Chinese, even when they had a theoretical understanding of their country as imperial, throughout the millennia they repeatedly had to acknowledge that theirs was only one nation among many. On these occasions, you would find them using the term Zhongguo, in a sense akin to how we would understand it in the modern world. By the Han Dynasty, between roughly 200 BC and 200 AD, the term Zhongguo appeared to have already become commonplace, as referring to China within its then-prevailing borders. In the Shizhi, the historical records, in the chapter on Great Ionia, the Greek-founded state in today's Kyrgyzstan, Sima Qian reports, The emperor heard about Great Ionia, Bactria, and Parthia, which were all great countries with their own produce and peoples, rather like Zhongguo. Describing the Parthians, Sima Qian tells us that they look like the Chinese of Zhongguo, but wear barbarian clothes. Describing the people of the kingdom of Silla in ancient Korea, Sima Qian says, Their language and things resemble those of the Chinese of Zhongguo. In the Han Shu, book of the later Han Dynasty, composed in the 5th century, the term Zhongguo is used in immediate contradistinction with Tianzhu, that was the name for ancient India, Bosi, that's Persia, and Daqing, the Roman Empire. Further usage in this vein, naming China as a nation among nations, continued after the Han Dynasty. Chapter 36 of the Book of Sui, which was written in the 7th century and tells the history of the short-lived Sui dynasty from the late 6th to the early 7th century, contains this sentence. The Turkic nation attempted to engage in commerce with Zhongguo, with China. Later in 819 AD, the famous Tang Dynasty writer Han Yu, in an essay on Buddhism, wrote, 
Buddhism is a religion originating among the barbarians, which entered Zhongguo during the Han Dynasty, but otherwise did not exist in this country in ancient times. During periods of division of multiple competing regimes, each regime might claim the mantle of Zhongguo. This was the case during the North and South dynasties in the 5th and 6th centuries. Both the North and the South claimed to be Zhongguo, the legitimate political authority in China, while denigrating the other as a kind of also-ran. This was again true during the Song dynasty. As we previously discussed over several episodes, the Song dynasty coexisted with a number of other regimes, the Kitan Liao and the Jurchen Jing empires chief among them. So it was that each of these three polities called itself Zhongguo, the real China, as it were, while treating the others as pretenders. Side note here, the situation today in which China is officially the People's Republic of China, while Taiwan is officially the Republic of China, is rather reminiscent of these earlier precedents, if you think about it. In interactions with Japan, the Northern Song Empire referred to itself as Zhongguo, and the Japanese in turn referred to the Song court as Zhongguo. Although during the Southern Song period, when Northern China had been lost to the Jurchen Jing Empire, Song writers sometimes used the term Zhongguo to mean the traditional Chinese heartland in the northern half of China, the geographical area now under what they saw as foreign occupation. The Yuan Dynasty, which began in the late 13th century, was, of course, actually founded by and run by the Mongols. But the Mongol Khans, at least starting with Kublai Khan, assumed the traditional mantle of the Chinese emperor. After all, there was nothing in the traditional Chinese theory of state that restricted emperorship to members of a certain race, and ethnically non-Han or mixed-race emperors were, by this time, already a dime a dozen. As recorded in the history of the Yuan dynasty, Kublai Khan, in diplomatic dealings with Japan, habitually referred to the country he ruled over as Zhongguo. The Ming dynasty, which replaced the Mongol Yuan dynasty, continued to use Zhongguo to refer to itself in foreign-facing situations. In 1407, the famous eunuch admiral Zheng He set sail for the second time for the Indian Ocean. On this voyage, he reached Kerala in southern India and erected a stele there. The stele no longer stands, but as late as 1613, Jesuit missionaries from Europe attested to seeing it there. And the text that he carved on it specifically said that he had sailed some 100,000 li west of Zhongguo. Journals kept by members of Zheng He's staff 
also repeatedly referred to China as Zhongguo when dealing with foreigners on these voyages. Later, in the 16th century, Emperor Wanli of the Ming, writing to the famous Japanese daimyo Toyotomi Hideyoshi, referred to Ming China as Zhongguo. After the Ming, of course, another non-Han regime came in that began as a foreign invasion, the Manchu Qing Dynasty. But once again, the Qing rulers assumed the traditional mantle of Chinese emperors. In 1689, when Emperor Kangxi's representatives settled border disputes with Russia and signed the Treaty of Nerchinsk, the text of the treaty referred to Qing China as Zhongguo. His son and grandson, Emperors Yongzheng and Qianlong, also habitually referred to the country they ruled over as Zhongguo. By the late Qing dynasty, government documents used Zhongguo and the great Qing interchangeably when referring to China. And in 1869, the American missionary John Livingston Nevius published a book about his experience in China called China and the Chinese. In the book, he specifically wrote about what name the Chinese usually gave to their own country. His answer, spelled out in the non-standard transliteration of the 19th century, was, you guessed it, Zhongguo. And finally, in 1909, the Qing court issued a nationality law, the first in Chinese history, in which the country ruled over by the Qing dynasty was again specifically and legally called Zhongguo. I hope I have succeeded by now in setting forth for you an overview of the extensive record of the Chinese referring to their country as Zhongguo, the central country or the Middle Kingdom, over the last 3,000 years or so. I didn't realize until fairly recently that I would ever need to spell out the voluminous record. I didn't realize until fairly recently that there is an entire cottage industry of Westerners who would deny this. An entire cottage industry that likes to pretend that China is only a century old or even less, one of the youngest nations in existence rather than one of the oldest. Frankly, I think to hold this view in the face of all the evidence to the contrary is not much better than thinking the earth is flat. But I suppose those who would persist in this fantasy, like flat earthers, would also refuse to be convinced by the evidence anyway. Nonetheless, I hope I have set the record straight for what it's worth. Next time you come across someone who will try to convince you that the concept of China only goes back to 1911 or even 1949, you'll know they're full of it. This has been MODG, 
Thank you for listening.